Hello, my name is Sanli Fares and you're listening to The Road to Open Science, a podcast brought to you by the Utrecht Young Academy. In a while, you will hear me talking with John Sebastian Koch, professor of physics and founder of the scientific publishing portal SciPost.org. A shorter version of this interview was aired in our third episode. To start with, would you be kind and introduce yourself? Okay, my name is uh, Jean-Sébastien Co. I'm a professor of uh, theoretical condensed matter at the University of Amsterdam. So I specialize in many body quantum mechanics, uh, things that have to do with quantum magnetism, cold atoms and things. So I try to do some uh, meaningful calculations that uh, are pretty mathematically advanced, but still have some experimental relevance to, you know, real things going on in the labs. So uh, our listeners, the people who listen to this podcast, are from all across the spectrum, from humanities and social sciences to uh, biomedical sciences. So can you maybe just a few sentences tell roughly what you do on a daily basis for research? Okay, so my work is really centered on the more formal aspects. So essentially what I try to do is translate uh, theories into experimental predictions. Um, so maybe one of the examples I can give uh, about my current research is that I'm extremely interested in out-of-equilibrium systems. So if you take uh, a certain physical system, so maybe indeed uh, atoms interacting with each other, but you try to shake them in a smart way, you might be able to create a, a state of matter that has interesting properties. So this is quite uh, quite difficult to, to get because, of course, you know all the atoms are interacting with each other and it's all very complicated. And on top of that, you're shaking them. Um, so what I try to do is really to develop theoretical tools to describe these things. So mostly it's, uh, it's really, if you want, uh, blue sky thinking. Once in a while, we come up with a construction that actually has some promise and we try to work it through. And then when we work it through, we might make suggestions to experimentalists of how they might be able to see such uh, such effects. And then we wait a few years, <laughs> and then if all goes well, once in a blue moon, it does actually happen. So, so but it is mostly uh, pen and paper. But uh, the reason I'm talking to you today is because of your other activity, which is uh, you have started a new publishing platform, the SciPost, uh, which... To me, sounds it has little to do directly with your research. Why did you do that? Um, so that's a very good question. <laughs> um, essentially, it started out of a bit of frustration with the way the industry was operating and uh, the things scientists had to face in order to get their science published. The way the publishing industry. Um, yeah, in a sense, the whole uh, the whole edifice related to publishing. So not only the, uh, the 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 publishing industry, if you want, the whole workflow associated to um, having your manuscripts reviewed, um, uh, getting your manuscripts published, um, essentially getting your science evaluated based on the publications that you have. So I thought that there was a great need for reform for all aspects related to uh, to publishing. And admittedly, uh, I've been thinking about that for many years. I've been busy at various level on these things for many years as well. And I do have a tendency to complain a lot about, you know, my surroundings and absolutely everything. So I used to complain quite a lot about uh, this whole side of, um, uh, of life as a scientist, you know, the whole edifice of publishing. And at some point, some colleagues just said, look, JS, you know, either you shut up about it or you do something about it. And then I, I looked into it a bit more seriously and um, I looked at um, the possibility indeed of maybe starting some, some initiative to try to do that, try to look at how complicated this would be. And then I thought, actually, it doesn't look that complicated. Certainly, if I compare the level of complexity of my day-to-day -day research with what's required to build a new infrastructure for, for publishing, I'm sorry, my research is way more complicated. So I can probably do this, uh, this other thing, uh, starting as a hobby. But of course, uh, that adds up to the uh, normal workflow. So I have extremely heavy work weeks, uh, admittedly, because I'm still, you know, full-time busy with my uh, my research group here and all my stuff. So all the hours that I put on that, it really adds up uh, uh, on top of the normal uh, work hours. Okay, but you you said the infrastructure. Physics is famous in the open science community for archive and the fact that preprints were used there already 20 years before it was fashionable in other fields. <clears throat> so, but was archive not enough for you? So 
with Archive, I think it's an interesting story because uh, indeed Archive was, uh, if you want, a, an early pioneer of what today we recognize as open science. But certainly when the Archive started really um, hitting the mainstream around 1990, 1991, there was no talk of open science. And even back then, the existence of a preprint server was a bit of a threat for the publishing industry because they thought, ah, you know, it's... a uh, it's not good for our business, but I think the archive managed to survive because of its single focus on preprints. And the archive has stayed narrowly focused on preprints. Um, uh, and I think in that sense, uh, it's given the illusion to physicists that we were always ahead of the curve for publishing. But uh, preprints for us is a problem that's been solved a long, long, long time ago. And the problems that we face today are typically not related to preprints or no preprints. They go much, uh, much further. So I think although the archive was an early pioneer in, uh, uh, in open science, it certainly uh, perhaps led physicists, among others, to think that they were still ahead of the curve. But when I, when I looked at the whole situation, my conclusion was that physicists were actually um, pretty far from the most innovative things that you have. I, um, I had the occasion to look around quite a lot, and even in fields like uh, biomedical sciences, atmospheric physics, uh, uh, you know, uh, loads of different sciences have, w have been way more creative and experimental with open science as we uh, talk about it today than physics has been. So, so maybe in that sense, the archive has also worked against physics in open science by giving the illusion to physicists that they were doing so well, but that's not really the case. No. I have a couple of uh, now quick questions, one way after one. What's your definition of open science? Because there are many definitions of open science, but do you have a specific definition that you use? Yeah, it's difficult because the discourse has been, you know, uh, diversified so much by different uh, uh, entries uh, from various people, different definitions, etc. So I have my own way of uh, of thinking of what uh, what I mean when I think about open science. It's a set of principles that I've called the genuine open access principles. And in a sense, uh, so I, I've got a blog entry essentially describing all the concepts associated to that. And it's, uh, it's a little bit far reaching because I'm a bit the kind of person who doesn't like to compromise very much on, uh, on quality of things, certainly as far as my research is, con is concerned. I'm a bit intolerant for anything that can still be improved. But that, uh, and I, I try to apply the same thing with, uh, with the hobby that I have of, uh, of publishing. So for me, um, uh, the correct concept of open science uses openness to improve all the aspects associated to it, be that the refereeing process, um, the uh, accessibility problem, um, the financial uh, structure behind it, the evaluation protocols, the metrification that we can do of this, um, so, uh, so in my genuine open access principles, essentially all these points are, are covered, but also uh, there's a question of the uh, uh, for-profit versus not-for-profit nature of all these things. So I view very much that the correct implementation of open access has to cover um, uh, all the aspects I, I mentioned in my blog that include indeed you know, everything from refereeing down to the business model and things. Um, so if you want, um, uh, it's a kind of version uh, which extends what are commonly known as the fair open access principles. So there are five principles in there, but it's like a bit of that, but harder and more complete to encompass everything having to do with, um, with publishing. So the way, the way we deal with openness as Cypos is that we really leverage openness to get some quality. I think one of the things that scientists are particularly concerned about uh, is uh, quality of the finished product. And Before we go to quality, so you inter interchangeably use open access and open science, although in other people we talk to, open science is an umbrella term, which open access publishing is just one part of it. But let's today focus on open access, as you, you rightly mentioned, and you generalize the principles of open access with the definition of what is true open access with all the standards you mentioned that I have seen also on the weblog of uh, SciPost and uh, your own weblog. So that's the publishing aspect of it. But how far do you think, starting from the publishing side, you can influence the cycle of research and attach to it also the 
career of people and the system producing scientists, the academia in general? So that's a difficult thing because these are, if you want, uh, in my mind, like after effects of a correct implementation of a publishing infrastructure. So that would contain many different aspects. First of all, uh, as far as the authors are concerned, uh, uh, the system should encourage you to write up your science according to the science itself, rather than to have to, if you want, dress it up to fit in one particular journal's editorial policies, etc. No, if you're actually doing research in a certain domain and your findings are so-and-so, you should be able to write this in a, a, a collected, professional, cool-headed manner without having to play theater or throw smoke and mirrors around in order to, to sell it. So that's the, the kind of authorship part of it. Uh, the, the second thing is that if you have the work of referees also put into the mix, um, there are a number of things that are not ideal now. So first of all, um, very often the work of the referees is, uh, is not recognized. Uh, it often goes essentially to waste because uh, although the authors might see it, uh, the editors very often that deal with it uh, don't have the professional qualifications to act on these reports. Um, these reports are also not used as useful material for other members of the community because they typically end up in some editor's drawer somewhere or never published. Um, so therefore, the, uh, the people who do spend time writing these things, they never get like recognition for this work. So giving more recognition for the referees is uh, another big thing. Then there's the, uh, of course, the easy to solve accessibility problem. So as a researcher, as a reader, you just want to be able to, of course, have access to the published uh, uh, material, all the published data behind it, uh, ideally, maybe the codes behind these things as well. So, so that facilitates your, your research. So um, uh, if I uh, put all of that into the mix, and if I think indeed of people, you know, how it influences their career and their way of working, I think that's the way I view it, by having a proper infrastructure, which is really built up with the scientists in mind, so their workflow, their desires, their needs, uh, uh, then it allows to maybe make the career a little bit more pleasant because instead of um, feeling that you're fighting with editors somewhere, then you, uh, uh, you concentrate on your science. Actually, one of the, one of the trigger moments for me um, with, uh, with SciPost and uh, uh, in my own personal history in the recent years as a researcher was a certain moment when um, uh, we had obtained within my group what I think is one of the very, very best results. I mean, certainly in the, in the kind of history of my group, but also in the community within which I'm working. This was really, a, for me, kind of a, a seminal result. And we, uh, of course, it was a very technical result. It was based on some conjectures. It was based on new complicated theories. And we tried to get it into the highest journals. And then uh, it didn't work with the first one. So we tried, uh, we kind of rewrote it for another one. And then, yeah, the theoretical level was a bit too high, not understandable, not very sellable and things. So it didn't work out. So then we tried another third and a third journal. And then, and at some point I got extremely uh, angry because I computed the time that we had spent writing up and rewriting and rephrasing and remassaging the uh, the work as compared to the time we had taken to actually execute the research and we had spent more time trying to sell the research than executing it and i felt at that point that this had gone completely bonkers because others could not understand what we were doing we had to waste time on this and i, I thought never again yeah, it's really, um, I, I, I do not care about journals' editorial policies like that. If I have good science, I will write it up like that. And if people don't, you know, per se understand it or feel that it fits with their particular, you know, objectives for that journal, then this is, this is, this should not be a block. So at that point, I thought, really, scientists are better served by themselves. So let's just let's just do it because once again it's not rocket science. You can just do it. The infrastructure is not complicated to build. So let's just build it. Let's just do it. Maybe a very quick well doesn't need to be quick. Why did you want to go for the highest journal? I I, I think you mean highest impact factor journal. Yeah. Actually that's a good question because um, when I started conceiving SciPost, I took the time to look at past initiatives uh, over the last couple of decades. I talked to a large number of people who had started uh, different journals, who had set up new initiatives and uh, had made some attempts in certain directions. 
And uh, so many of these things, of course, were, were started successfully, but then didn't really take on. Uh, they, they, they exist, they, they survive, but they don't necessarily thrive. And one of the um, things I identified as one of the very common, almost universal weaknesses of the uh, things that hadn't quite succeeded was uh, an insufficient focus on quality. Um, I think, um, uh, especially when you're starting small scale, um, the first objective is maybe to start with the core of the community that you are serving. And uh, for me, I mean, of course, I've been around quite a lot within physics, so uh, I know a lot of people and a lot of people know me, so I don't hesitate to, uh, you know, contact people, even Nobel Prize winners that have uh, these things and discuss with these things about them, the very, uh, you know, most influential people in the field and try to see. And I thought that was the correct beginning point, because if... Um, I mean, my thinking was that if I managed to convince those people that indeed it was a good thing to try to go down that road, then surely uh, others would follow. Uh, so start from the top quality and then move down as you scale up. Uh, the, the other reason why it's interesting to start maybe with the top quality side of things is because it uh, it sets the reputation for the long term, right? You you state your objective clearly. Yes, indeed, we want to be the toughest place to publish in physics. Yes, we want to have the most useful refereeing process there is. Yes, we want to have the very best, most influential papers in the long term in our things. Even if they're not recognized at first, 20 years later, people you know would still recognize the quality because that's what we focus on. So um, so this just felt like giving it the right signal, the right credibility. Uh, the right uh, pitch to attract indeed the uh, the better side of things, and one things I uh, one thing I'd like to add to this um, when I was looking at uh, all these initiatives, of course I also looked at existing existing publishers, and um, uh, so one of the very distinct things that I uh, noticed in many places is that very often by the uh, existing publishing industry. Um, uh, open access is being used almost a little bit like a second-order dump for things that didn't make it to the top. Yeah, uh, very often uh, I've heard my colleagues say, "Hey, you know, we didn't make it in that uh, particular thing, but look at the email they sent me. Oh, we have this uh, open access uh, subjournal here that you might consider, you know, downgrading your paper to." They don't use the word downgrading, but they say you might consider transferring your paper to there. And then uh, you have it. So, so you see, there's a risk that these open access journals are now viewed mostly as a bit of a second tier in terms of quality uh, where publishers can send their things. So, so I'm not saying it happens universally, but there is a tendency for that. And for me, um, that's the thing where I, saw, I really saw an opportunity to, uh, to turn the tables around, to say, no, 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 the, uh, the, the notion of open access, first of all, should be understood in terms of openness at all these other levels, including, once again, refereeing and everything, so that through openness, you obtain a higher quality than these other places. And this but, is really something we, uh, we try to you know, work on. And, and but how do you define quality of a paper that you have just received? It's essentially uh, uh, all left to our editorial college. So uh, the idea is that we, we assemble this uh, college of uh, specialists. Uh, so at the moment, we have approximately 60, but we want to scale it up to about 200 until the end of this year uh, for all fields of physics. And essentially, all the editorial decisions, all the evaluations uh, uh, happen through the college. So uh, quality is exclusively assessed by um, you know, professionally active specialists in the field. Um, the, uh, the assessment sometimes is, is very, very difficult, of course, because you might not be able to uh, assess uh, certainly the, the importance of the work. Correctness is easier to assess. Um, but uh, the editorial college is the, the, the body within SIPOS that actually takes care of that. So the fellows that we have, when they take charge of a submission, they consult, of course, uh, external referees. So they explicitly invite a number of referees to evaluate the papers. Then they look at the papers themselves. Sometimes some contributors that we have also provide some comments or even contributed reports on, on the papers. So we, we rely very, very much on the community in that sense to uh, to get the evaluation going but uh, 
uh, ultimately we want uh, scientific criteria to be used for the uh, for the evaluation so but, and the other journals which are out there some run by societies they also have scientists as editors right yeah absolutely absolutely so so you know I, I'm not saying that we're the only ones who do refereeing correctly and then publishing correctly so I think the uh, uh, the thing that we uh, we perhaps do a little bit differently uh, is that uh, you know it's clear we've got nothing to sell. Yeah, I'm not trying to sell PDF. That's my, my not my point. So my question is that how come that the other societies, society journals in physics, we have physical review letters from APS, which is maybe uh, the top journal of physics, and it has been also started like that. And you still can say, you know, there is a rejection rate and uh, you can probably complain about the rejection rate and the fact that only two referee reports are not enough. Now you say that you ask more people and you do it more openly. So that's probably makes the process more transparent and hopefully more fair. But uh, how come that the other journals also don't do that? Or what happened? Is it because of matter of scale there? So um, again, in terms of the the editorial procedures, this is a place where we really saw a big opportunity. Uh, so so uh, we uh, um, we thought that uh, although other fields of science have already experimented with open refereeing, this is something which was almost non-existent in uh, in physics, with you know less than a handful of exceptions. Um, and certainly nobody had tried to leverage this openness for, for quality. So this was really a case where um, it was needed in physics. And that's also a, a, an exemplification of uh, the fact that physics was not innovative at all, because there are other fields of science that have been running open refereeing ever since around the year 2000, and that's a long time ago. Can you briefly explain how is this open refereeing happening? Um, okay, so um, the idea of uh, the refereeing that we implement, so we call it peer-witnessed refereeing, just to, you know, uh, give it a, an identifier as compared to others. So um, the idea is that uh, we have our pool of, of uh, fellows in the college um, who uh, take a look at the incoming submissions. So when somebody sends a paper to SciPost, its, uh, its first step is to survive what we call the pre-assignment pre uh, phase, the pre-screening phase. Um, so uh, what happens there, besides all the standards, plagiarism checks and uh, conflict of interest checks, um, are that our fellows take a look at the submission. And if they are interested enough in the submission, then they will declare that they want to take charge of it. If a submission is not taken charge of by one of our fellows, then, you know, there's a bit of hesitation, maybe lack of interest, and then it can be desk rejected. Although this happens only in a small percentage of, uh, um, uh, of submissions. Once a fellow takes charge of a submission, uh, the fellow will then start a refereeing round. So uh, the fellow will explicitly invite a number of specialists to review the paper within the next you know, our standard refereeing period is four weeks. Um, uh, however, the, uh, the submission itself obtains a submission page on the site and registered contributors to SciPost um, are... Uh, in position to volunteer reports or comments on the submission currently under evaluation. We also ask our submitters to make a little mention in their archive submission that they have submitted to SciPost. And as community understanding builds of what that means, um, uh, it will become clear to those people who say who see that on the archive they submitted to SciPost, oh, that means that if I have something to say before they take a decision, then I can do it. Um, so the idea is that during the refereeing phases, not only the invited referees can contribute a, a report, but also professional you know, specialists in the field can give comments spontaneously without having been invited. Um, at the end of a refereeing round, the editor in charge then uh, gathers all these things and comes to a recommendation. So the editor in charge will recommend perhaps a minor or a major revision, uh, will perhaps recommend rejection, will perhaps recommend acceptance. In case of a recommendation for a decision, like acceptance or rejection, then the recommendation of the fellow 
is forwarded to the editorial college for voting. So what's very important for us is that um, uh, all editorial decisions are taken um, uh, communally within the college. So we try to mitigate any you know, conflict of interest here. We don't want any clubs developing or, or things like that. And the fact that we use these communal decisions, uh, uh, if you want, reinforces the integrity of our process and the, uh, the kind of uh, evidence-based conclusions we would like to, uh, to come to. So I think in, um, in not only the form of refereeing, it being opened and peer witnessed and, you know, the possibility of contributing. Also, the decision-making process is uh, slightly different. First of all, it is in the hands exclusively of professionally active scientists. These are people who are not professional editors working their whole day as editors. They are active scientists. And um, we, we really want to underline that because this is also in contrast to, you know, many uh, currently in favor publishers where in the end, although the professional scientists do have a lot of intervention in the process, they are not clearly, clearly the ones having the final say on this. And we, we certainly don't impose any, um, if you want, uh, uh, very strong directions to uh, to the journals we have and things. What we want is just to have the most, you know, high quality, up to date research in the field of physics. But uh, if that pertains to material science or you know some arcane features of latest developments about moonshine and things, then uh, we're happy with all of that. But this is sounds to me like a formalized version of some other society journals. I understand that there are differences. Still, it gives a huge difference or huge asymmetry to the people who are in the college and the rest of the scientists right so first of all how come some people are in the college and the rest are not how do you select them and second how do you uh, mitigate this asymmetry between the people who have a say in publishing something and the others who have to as authors just submit yeah, so, so that's an interesting question because uh, the, uh, the one factor that I had identified quite early on in order to obtain recognition of uh, SciPost as an operation uh, was really the quality of the people uh, composing its editorial board. Yeah, so everybody has an editorial board. We have an editorial college, just so we're different a little bit. You know, I come from Oxford and I have a bit of <laughs> college uh, history behind me. And I thought this, uh, this concept of fellowship was like a nice uh, word to use for that. So um, the, the signals I got and uh, especially the, uh, the very useful tips I got from people with experience in starting these things, they said, look, um, get yourself a, 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 a bunch of clearly extremely good people on the list of people who are actually taking your decisions, put that on your website, let your colleagues look at it, and by one look, they will be convinced. And indeed, up to this day, this is still happening. If, um, if I try to convince people to submit to us, if I try to maybe even uh, recruit a new fellow somewhere, typically I point them to our, uh, our about page with the list of people on our advisory board and then people in our editorial college. And spontaneously, very often they have the same reaction and say, okay, you know, this is really serious. This is actually extremely serious. Um, so, so it's very convincing. Um, so, so we needed a kind of a team like that with a clear perhaps uh, cohesion, respect for quality and uh, reputation, and also people who are actually good at getting things done uh, to, to make sure that, uh, that it had this, uh, this good reputation. Now, the idea of the college is really that we can operate properly. Yeah? So, so we do need people to intervene. We do need people with a certain bit of experience. We need people with a bit of perspective. We need people with a, a vision of the operation as a whole who kind of see things coming. So the fellows that we have, they, they already have this experience and things, and they can really help uh, make it run uh, quite far. But um, uh, morally, uh, we, uh, we want this college to be extremely broad. Uh, so uh, our, our objective for this year would be to grow it to about 200 fellows, so at least you know, triple or quadruple in size uh, from what it is now. Um, uh, and this uh, would be enough to meet the expected growth and flow that, uh, that, we, uh, that we expect, that we plan for. Um, but actually, uh, even just this morning in our strategy meeting, we were looking at various possibilities, and one of the points under discussion was that 
you know, we don't want to uh, give the feeling, precisely the feeling you mentioned, that some are in and some are not. So the way we're going to develop uh, this thing is that, uh, uh, on the one hand, we still want to have a, a core team of people who uh, maybe know more how it works and know all the workflow, but we want to um, benefit from community members who might be able to help us run refereeing processes. So, so we, uh, we will invite, uh, uh, starting from, you know, next week onwards, members of the community themselves who are not listed as fellows, but we will nonetheless invite them themselves to take charge of specific submissions. We say, you know, you're somebody who knows some, something about that field and things. Could you run the refereeing process um, on this particular submission? And could you formulate a recommendation based on the collected reports and things? So, um, so you see, the, the idea behind Cypost is that we really want it to be a community-run thing. So on the one hand, we don't want to ask the community members to do the administrative thing at the back and take care of the sign and all the infrastructure. We, we do all of that. But we do want community members to get actively involved in the refereeing process. So as a scientist these days, you do uh, typically uh, two things. Yeah? You write papers and you referee papers. A few of us get asked by specific journals, specific publishers to maybe sit on an editorial board, in which case we uh, uh, start inviting referees ourselves and taking editorial decisions. You know, uh, certainly um, uh, that's the case in, in some places. You, you, you get the decisional power. You, know, you can click on the button and then the paper is accepted and that's it. But so what we want is maybe to uh, generalize that to a much broader community where in addition to writing and refereeing, we want people to also actively participate in the refereeing process by becoming you know, guest editors in charge of the submissions that we have. So if we receive a particular submission in uh, nuclear physics or in, uh, you know, some applications of uh, uh, yeah, numerical physics in a certain direction or something, and we don't have a fellow that's able to take charge, doesn't matter. We will just contact specialists in the field and we will say, okay, you know, by now you're a bit familiar with the SIPOST system. Are you interested in taking charge of this submission? And if so, fine, you're given the tools to invite the referees and things like that. So, so on the one hand, we don't want to say, ah, everybody with a permanent academic job in the world, for example, is a fellow at SciPost. Because, you know, there's, um, there's a notion then that it's just not serious. Yeah, it's just a joke because you're putting people in there who you haven't invited, who haven't volunteered to do anything. On the other hand, uh, we don't want to say, no, no, this is a, I'm sorry, you're not in the college. Yeah, you're not a fellow of us, so you can't say anything. Uh, we really don't want that. Yeah, we're not we're not a bunch of snobs. We, we really want to uh, keep it as open as possible. So that means, uh, you know, uh, as far as we can, uh, we do want to have a cohesive core team that's able to guarantee the the quality. But uh, quality sometimes can also be harvested from the the, the community by pointed interventions at various places, relatively high up in the. Uh, in the refereeing system and the editorial workflow that we have. So this is, at the moment, in view of our workflow, our college is big enough. Um, but uh, for, for the growth, then we will like, enlarge it with these, uh, these concepts. And these, uh, these are meant to really encourage community participation in it. Yeah. So what do you see the ratio of the number of submissions uh, or the number of publications to the number of fellow members in the college? So we try to keep the workload of our fellows to a minimum. Uh, granted, some of our fellows are uh, uh, burdened with a larger number of submissions. Um, uh, uh, some of them end up with very much simpler cases than others, etc. But the, um, uh, the statement that we make to our fellows is that uh, if they were willing to invest, say, two to four hours of work per month, for SciPost, they could really do an extremely valuable job. So we, we say, if you take charge over a calendar year of approximately five submissions, then we're extremely happy with you. Uh, it's already quite good. 
sometimes it might mean that you know there's submission, resubmission, and second resubmission and things like that. But if uh, if a fellow during a calendar year takes five new titles and runs them through the refereeing process uh, and does uh, his or her voting duties, uh, then this is this is perfect. Um, now, granted, some fellows probably invest more than this uh, four hours uh, max per month. Um, some fellows invest, uh, you know, uh, less. Uh, it depends uh, on the subject area and the time of the year. So, but that that is what what we'd want. Yeah, we don't want to have people who suddenly start working 40% of their time just doing that for SIPOS. That's not the idea. But, uh, now, Archive has now 12,000 submissions a month. That was the record. If I do the calculation, then you need, I don't know, some like 20,000 uh, or more fellow in the college to handle all of those. How are you going to scale up? Well, so if we, uh, if our task was to handle all the submissions at the archive, then of course uh, we'd uh, we'd have an issue. But you see, the idea of involving the community, uh, well, first of all, the idea of having a large-scale college. So I, I mentioned the number two hundred fellows for this year. Uh, you see, uh, this is based on prediction for growth, which sees us publishing five hundred papers a year. And then if I have two hundred fellows, you see, I'm still under. Uh, the number I gave you. So we'd still have even more room for growth on that, but we want to give ourselves a bit of a... So, um, uh, uh, so the, way, the way I think about it is when I think of a particular publication, well, okay, there are, there are three things that need to occur. First of all, the authors have to uh, write the paper. Uh, let's call that uh, uh, maybe a thousand units of work, okay? Uh, and now uh, we have another class of people who need to intervene on the paper. Those are the referees. Uh, well, okay, it's difficult to estimate standardly what the uh, amount of work refereeing is, but I would say it's probably something close to two orders of magnitude less than authoring the paper. Maybe a bit more if it's a 50th or a 25th, I don't know. But I would expect the authors to indeed, if you count everything, maybe to have spent a hundred times more work than the referee has. Uh, but the referee uh, uh, still has to do a lot of work. It takes a long time to read a paper properly, to read uh, literature on the side, to think about it, to draft a good report. So fine, let's call this 10 units of work. Okay. Um, but then what's left, it's the editorial workflow. Okay, so what's the, uh, what's the editorial workflow? Well, you need somebody to uh, certainly invite referees, uh, maybe uh, read through the referee reports, uh, think about, uh, read through the paper, read through the referee reports, think about it a bit, and then uh, uh, formulate a recommendation. Of course, the, the, the fellows who do it extremely professionally, then it's like also 10 units of work to, to get it done. They don't have to write the report, that's the difference, but they still have to write a recommendation. So I don't know, maybe we call that like five units uh, or something. Um, so, uh, so if we are able to author 12,000 new uh, preprints per month uh, for the archive as a community, then we are certainly mathematically in position to referee and to edit if you want to run the editorial workflow on all those papers if we leverage the power of the community and that's what SciPost intends to do yeah so we don't have to we don't want to have this uh, closed house where suddenly we're overwhelmed with uh, with all of these things um, uh, we will grow with adoptance and our pool for growth is simply the community as a whole Unless uh, you say that we write way more articles than we can read, and in some fields it has happened, and I heard from more people, you can go to a, a classroom or a class of researchers and ask them how many people have read an article last week, and how many of them are writing an article at this moment, and the proportion is unbelievable. 90% are working on an article, and probably 10% have read an article in the last months. That's the general thing. But I see the calculation you made, okay? I, I, my guess is that you probably have to have a network of colleges. It's not all in one college. But uh, so looking at the time, uh, I want to ask a couple of more questions. So we talked a couple of uh, uh, the questions I had already. Uh, we asked the, how to scale. But you started with this competition with, uh, with the ob other uh, uh, publishers, professional publishers. And so they put a lot of 
professional activity mar marketing uh, they do through the same process but with a lot of marketing they reach uh, you know critical mass that it survives how are you going to do with only support of uh, academics and professionals who have a lot of other things to do uh, to survive and scale up within a reasonable amount of time so that's a kind of organizational question, which is uh, quite difficult. So of course we rely on the community to run the, uh, the refereeing processes and to come to the conclusions about the papers, but we don't rely on the community to build the necessary infrastructure behind it and to yeah, do, do all the support. So for that's that, not my question. My question is about the submissions. So when do you think? I mean, you get what? How many submissions a month now? So it's still relatively little. It's about twenty to twenty-five. Yeah. So. But do you still feel that people submit to you their best work? So in some cases, yes, actually. Yeah, so we have, uh, we have some uh, authors who have essentially been exposed to the procedures at SciPost and then essentially uh, almost uh, a moment of revelation decided, okay, uh, this is it from now on. This is really the, uh, the best place to send it. So, so we have some, and some others are more uh, experimentally trying to, okay, let, let's give it a go. Let's try one thing and see how it goes. Um, so I think in the course of time, I want it to be that uh, people even uh, uh, think of SciPost when they write up their paper and they think, okay, let's just tell it as it is, because I know that at SciPost, that's the way they want it. Yeah, that's the way they like it. They, they are understanding of science written without anything else in mind than science. And yes, indeed, we, we like that. So for example, we, <laughs> we, we, uh, we don't accept these uh, uh, like artisty images that are pseudoscience and just, you know, nonsense, really. We say, you know, we don't want that. Yeah, don't pay artists to do your, your scientific pictures. This is nonsense. Send us your, send us your, um, uh, your, 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 the plan of your optical table. Yeah, uh, send us the technical drawing for the actual measurement apparatus you have. Uh, uh, give us, you know, something, uh, uh, an excerpt of the code you've used for this and things. You know, the technical stuff, the real stuff that you know, that is used for doing the science and reproducing the science. So this is this is thing. These are things that I think will take time to filter through to the community. But I think when it does filter through, maybe people will feel a little bit more at home. Uh, uh, writing with SciPost in mind and indeed maybe reserving their perhaps slightly more complicated things, perhaps their specialized results and things, but they're, th they're true breakthroughs. Yeah? Breakthroughs are not things that you can explain easily. Yeah? You don't need to dress it up into some understandable thing. Science is science. Science is hard. Science is technical. Science is advanced. Science requires a, a, a vocabulary uh, by and for experts, but there's a reason why this vocabulary is technical. It's because it is precise, and the meaning transpires through correct use of precise language. So we don't want our authors to dumb down their papers. We don't want them to write for you know a general public or anything. No, give us the science as it is. That's what we want. That's what we value, and we think that in the course of time, in the long term, this is really what stays, and this is what inspire scientists to you know produce better work higher quality work and things like that so in that sense what i hope is that in the course of time indeed the very way of thinking of writing up your paper will change certainly in, in my case it has already changed because i absolutely so but before i really wanted to ask this question so a lot of decisions now i need a bit of introduction a lot of decisions of where to submit work is done be based on the reputation of the journals for many bad and good reasons and many good scientists at your standards also people from your college submit to high impact factor journals because of their phd students who want to get a job because of themselves who have to defend a grant and the people who are in the grant and hiring committees are not necessarily the expert in their field so not everybody knows the name of every journal even the brands are much more famous so a lot of people tell me that yes i need a nature or nature satellites or whatever that comes from that corner of the world because uh, yeah that's where uh, my committee members understands and that's how I think these journals have tapped to in this uh, uh, aspect of the evaluation in science 
and that's why you get so many satellites expanding and you get the brands uh, coming up uh, unless I say okay I know these college members they probably would be half of my committee members uh, if they are in Cypost so I'm okay I will send it because if it's in the Netherlands they're probably half of my committees anyway so they understand but until I get this perception that also my community understands Cypost and its quality that it perceives, it would be difficult for me to choose five Cypost. I understand now that if I look at the entries of Cypost, I understand a little bit of physics. So it's from a little corner of theoretical physics. And I think that network effect already has uh, showed up there. How to break this circle of committee members and evaluation committee members understanding the quality and not the journal name so so uh, a, a few things here so first of all uh, 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 so indeed uh, so Cypost has published a little bit more than 100 papers by now uh, many of them are in what you could call like quantum condensed matter theory or many body statistical physics and things that's your field of research also. and the reason why that's the case is of course it was uh, quite easy for me to uh, maybe uh, publicize Cypost and justify it because those people I met in conferences, they know me and you know they know I'm a scientist and that's my, my core and I just happen to be a hobby publisher on the side and I could really explain to them the reasons behind it, I, I, I could really get them into it and they, they would understand it and they trust me also for you know setting it up properly. Now one of the things that has happened with Cypost that I'm very pleased with is that we have managed to attract people from various fields of physics we have a number of extremely high-caliber experimental papers uh, in uh, uh, in Cypost physics until now. We've uh, uh, we've started making inroads into into high-energy physics theory. We've got phenomenology uh, starting to occur and things. So we are we are preparing the grounds for that, and um, people have to give us the time to obtain the reputation that we do want to achieve. Um, Cypost has been publishing only since September 2016. We are competing against journals that have been around for over 150 years. Uh, so uh, what I would say is, uh, you know, give us five years and then see where we are. And I think you'll be impressed by the breadth of material we will have been able to attract. Why? Because we've already shown that we can diversify a bit and because it is our intention to diversify. We want to have, a, if you want, a flat coverage of the whole field of physics uh, for that. And of course, it means that within our college, we need to expand greatly in certain areas. We need to, uh, to ensure that the college composition is able to withstand the workflow that we get. But, you know, chicken before the egg or uh, things will happen. And I think I see very positive signs um, uh, for that. Um, so um, in terms of the journal reputation within the community, then uh, I think there are, so one of the things which I always love to, uh, to, to state is the following observation. I have great respect for my colleagues. I think they're wonderful people, super clever, super imaginative, good-hearted, good, -hearted, good in, uh, intentions, morals typically irreproachable. Uh, uh, they write beautiful things, they have beautiful ideas, they, they really, you know, they're inspiring at so many levels. So why is it that they are so stupid at using antiquated measures with half-hearted attempts at pseudo-rational evaluations like impact factor, H-index, and all this patent nonsense? It is a common agreement within scientists that this is absolutely not the way you would um, evaluate your own research. Um, it is absolutely certain that no scientist has such low-quality protocols as things like impact factor and H-index. So why is it that scientists who are such yeah, morally, uh, if you want, irreproachable creatures and extremely bright, imaginative things, how is it that this group of people still uses these methods? It is complete... Yeah, I, I, I'm not saying that these things don't have any information. Uh, of course, the impact factor is an interesting measure. Of course, the H-index is an interesting simplification of a measure. But there are many more. One can think of many dozens of indices. One can think of many... Uh, your answer is, how is it that scientists act like this? I think it is because of the direct consequence on the personal lives of scientists of these particular things. Let me make one 
very quick suggestion. So um, uh, instead of essentially giving so many brownie points to anybody sitting as an author on that particular high impact factor, why don't we just divide the number of citations of that paper by the number of authors? Wouldn't that be fair? There have been suggestions to do that. If you think that's too much, well, okay, let's divide by the log of the number of authors or the square root or something like that. You want to be creative thing? Let's define a hundred different measures for it. But let, let us not limit ourselves to this single thing because I have seen it in all the commissions that I have been sitting, it, uh, sit, sitting in for various things. If uh, a certain master student happens to hop into a long-lasting collaboration and then end up having uh, his name in that uh, particular paper in that particular journal, even though you know he spent essentially a few weekends helping out with uh, cleaning up the apparatus, this person will have a higher chance at a personal fellowship than some more theoretical uh, uh, person who will publish in some recognized venue in the field of mathematical physics a single authored paper on a complicated problem that few people understand. Now, if you ask me what I think of the observation that I can make of the direct consequence on one's career or another, I think we are bordering on uh, a criminal behavior in the way we evaluate those, uh, those people and the way these evaluations really perhaps inflate or destroy careers of scientists. And this is really something which I think has happened for many, many different reasons. You know, it's, uh, it's become a bit of a, uh, a, a, bit of a catwalk uh, publishing. So, so you've got fashions, you've got things that have high impact and therefore you go for this and this and that. But let's be honest, let's take a step back. On our deathbeds, when we think of the good science that we will have performed, Will we remember those moments when we dressed up our science in a particular way so it went somewhere? Or will we think, I oh, know, you know what? There was that idea. There was that particular really charming little piece of insight that I, I failed to publish in the big things, but, but it was there. And 10 years later, one of my colleagues, you know, uh, he said, hey, you know what? Yeah, that idea you had there, yeah, maybe that's the most beautiful thing you ever did. Yeah. But you never got recognition for that. So, but now, now I see that um, it's now this publishing system now becomes a part of a much bigger ecosystem. I want to ask a very specific question. So, does your members, the, the members you choose for the editorial college, do they, I don't say officially sign, but do they admit to a pledge that when they sit in these committees, they will defend quality not based on these metrics, but based on the process? Is there any relation between the people who sit in these colleges that you want to choose and this perception? And I want to ask if, as a publisher, do you actually act as also encouraging such behavior in a larger scale? So we don't uh, ask our fellows to sign a point-by-point -point contract where we control their thinking and behavior and morals and things like that. Uh, on the contrary, actually, I think the... Uh, uh, the philosophy behind SIPOS, the ideas behind it are clearly exposed on the, on the site. Uh, we, uh, we do ask the uh, would-be fellows or the people we approach to, of course, familiarize themselves with, uh, with the efforts. We don't ask them to agree uh, with, uh, with uh, everything in there. Uh, uh, so we have these virtual general meetings uh, once in a while where indeed uh, comments from fellows can be, can be put and sometimes there are you know, disagreements there and uh, oh, we should do this instead of that or we shouldn't uh, go for that kind of thing or we should be careful with this. So uh, that, that's the whole point with academics, isn't it? So we, uh, uh, people often think that uh, 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 we all have to be in accord and we all have to be, uh, to be singing in the same tune and things like that. But then I really, really like uh, going back to the allegory of uh, Asterix. Eh? So I, I don't know if you remember in one of the, uh, uh, in one of the episodes of Asterix, they're in, uh, they end up in North America because of a storm. And then Asterix and Obelix are there and they can't communicate by language and they, they have to communicate by sign but they're trying to explain to the North American natives yeah, who they are, what they are. And what they say, what they say is, you know, we, uh, 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 we're, we're very unpredictable. We, we fight with each other the whole time. We argue, and we, but then we eat together and we celebrate. And, we, and that is exactly my image of scientists. So let us disagree with each other in a kind of uh, open platform. Let us fight it out. Let us essentially uh, uh, argue about things 
in the hope that this argument indeed leads us to better quality, better openness. So, so uh, I hope I hope that our fellows don't systematically agree with everything that we write, everything that we try, because that's exactly what I want. And our fellows will disagree with each other, and we will see how things evolve. But the important thing is that we stay close to the community, and even more important, we want to give control to the community. Yeah, so, so, so at the moment it might feel, oh, I post, you know, oh, it's that Amsterdam thing and it occurs in this room there and there are this closed college. Absolutely not. The idea is that we want to, of course, um, uh, build it up, but in such a way that the community can feel that it has the handle, uh, that if, if somehow things don't occur uh, the way they want it, that they can intervene and they can... Uh, give their input and hopefully steer it in a certain way. And maybe we'll want to experiment with loads of different forms of uh, workflows that we have here to, to see what works best. This is all part of it. I mean, we've got um, no intention of uh, like uh, dictating anything, if you want. But we do want to reform the business of scientific publishing and bring it back to the community. Okay, so that's right. And do you think in terms of scale, you mentioned journals which are 100 years, but there are also journals which are two years and they suddenly get magic impact factors of 20 above and they are now publishing 5,000, 10,000 a year and open access, which the same publishing system you have. And people submit, and these are respectable scientists who submit to these articles. Do you think that there would be a reform in the behavior of people in submitting to platforms like SIPOS or community-driven journals instead of the other uh, brand-developed uh, publishers if there is no change in the other side of the behavior, the hiring, the grant allocation, the, the allocation of resources, principle. So I think the, uh, the behavior and the grant giving and fellowship giving will be longer term. I think this is going to go the following route. At some point, people will recognize indeed that uh, SciPost has like really high quality and then it'll start counting as brownie points. And then maybe people will start viewing us as one of the evil ones. Yeah, oh, you're just trying to, you know, cover the top slice of the market, etc. Uh, yeah, fine. At first, will be uh, will be smaller scale. And yes, admittedly, we will start from the top end. And then in the course of time, we'll see what uh, what we need to what we need to cover. Now, in terms of uh, other open access things, there is one market difference, which is our business model. And I think. Uh, uh, one of the great risks of the current transition to open access is essentially the, the hijacking of open access for the implementation of a new business model based on article processing charges or the equivalent, you know, backdoor uh, uh, payments from universities to publishers without the scientists being involved in that. Big deal negotiations where suddenly scientists are completely decoupled. And I get extremely irritated by what I see in the world where once again there's a, there's a big deal. Even at my university here, you get this announcement once in a while that, oh, from now on, um, scientists of... Uh, University X can publish in all those journals here free of charge. This is a lie. It is not free of charge. It, the correct statement is that the, uh, uh, the publisher is licensed to send an invoice for a number which is not agreed upon for the coming, uh, uh, more than the, uh, the coming little period, um, uh, uh, which will be paid without question by the university. So these, uh, these big deals, essentially, they provide enormous publicity for the publishers who do end up with this backdoor invoice pump of money from the institutions to their coffers. And uh, things like SciPost, we don't get such big announcements because, no, there's no need for a big deal with SciPost. We don't charge article processing charges. We do not charge our authors. We expect to be able to survive from donations from the institutions that benefit from our activities. But this is a really hard sell. Because what I hear very often is, ah, you know, it's really tough at the library here because our budget is up. You know, we've yeah, I know your budget is up because you've told the publishers how much you had and they asked you a little bit more and you paid it. So, of course, I know you don't have enough money for a side post at the end of the year. That's fine. But think about it. You know, is this the smart way to do it? We have a replacement infrastructure that is able to work as a, a, a curtailer of the 
ultra-inflation that is being witnessed in the costs. Our operational costs are estimated to be one quarter of even the lowest APCs that you will get out there. And, you know, let us, give us the chance to prove this viability and then make us sit on the same table during the negotiations. And we will ask exactly where the money goes in the other places because it doesn't need to be there. But the, um, uh, the, the, the difficulty here is that because of the way the open access transition is being, is being run, because of the way the negotiations are being done with the current publishers, scientists are once again going to be like fooled into thinking that um, uh, uh, things have been solved and it's now all free. In fact, one of my, my favorite little side hobbies is to um, uh, take editors for certain journals uh, uh, that are you know, possibly open access journals and then check with these editors whether they understand the business model of the organization that they work for. And it is quite shocking to see up to what point they are either uh, kept in the dark uh, of this uh, or uninterested or illusioned into thinking that it's something else. And then, you know, there's a great lack of understanding on the part of the scientists involved in these things of what they are dealing with. And I think if this understanding was uh, uh, was improved, things would transition much faster. But of course, you know, there are interests in not m making these uh, these changes. So that's where I view SciPost really as the, the, the black sheep in the whole party. Uh, yes, we do want to rock the cage of the business of scientific publishing quite a lot because uh, we scientists, we, we care, we care about the science, we care about the quality of the product, uh, of the product, we care about the way we are treated, we care about the consequences that it has on us, on our young people, uh, on everything. Um, so, so yes, we do feel entitled in having a look, and if we're not happy with what we see, writing a referee report, asking for changes, and expecting them to be implemented. And sometimes the best way to implement these changes is just implement them yourself as an example and that's the kind of drive behind it so this is my last question i know that i went over time sorry my last question is a bit personal but i'm also in a similar situation now you mentioned initially your colleague said to you that you know js stop uh, complaining or do something and now you're doing something it takes a lot of your time a lot of your attention you're doing it very passionately it's very completely clear and beautiful to 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 observe but uh, what's the perception of your colleagues about your side activity which has become so bold don't they think well i don't say i don't want to make any statements like that do they look at you say oh js stop doing these other things go back to your physics now or uh your immediate colleagues do they take you now at the same time, serious physicist, while you're doing all these side jobs? So I make a, a, an extremely explicit point that I am still exactly the same person that, uh, that I was before. I'm still exactly the same scientist. The only difference is that, uh, so, so if in the past I was working my 70 hours, then of course my 70 hours was mostly research and then the side teaching and uh, admin. Now it's perhaps a little bit more like 45 hours on my, uh, uh, my normal job and then uh, you know, 30 hours for, uh, for SciPost. Uh, I, I think uh, even for SciPost's sake, uh, I want to make a point that I am a professionally active scientist. And in that sense also, uh, for me, uh, just receiving the, uh, the ERC Advanced recently kind of helped underline that point. Yeah, It helped put my feet on the ground and say, no, 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 no. I am not a publisher. I, I will never be a publisher. I might be running a whole publishing thing on the side, but this is not my job. I am a professionally active scientist. That's what I do. That's what I want to keep on doing. And the first occasion I've got, I will redirect my extra forces towards this. Yeah, it's, it's completely clear. Um, so, so of course, people uh, people get worried about the amount of work that I that I do uh, when I crack jokes about all the missed hours of sleep that uh, that I have and things. They kind of shake their heads and they really genuinely think I will collapse at some point in the corridor, which might still occur. Who knows? But um, uh, but I don't think anybody within the the circle of people I interact with uh, really think that I've kind of given up on the on the science. This is really not the case. Um, and in any case, it's my firm intention with SciPost 
uh, prove sustainability and community ownership of it in one very clear way. First occasion I get of bailing out, if I trust that it's completely stable, what do you think I'm going to do? Of course I'm going to bail out. I've got no interest in there. On the contrary, I'm losing so many hours. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, you know, expending my energies into that in the hope that it serves something. But it's, it's not going to allow me to take my wife out to a nice dinner or go on vacation or something. On the contrary, right? It ruins all these things. So the sooner it stops, the better. Yeah? But I will not let it fall. I will build it so that it's stable. I will make it sustainable. And the best proof of its sustainability is going to be when I will move out. But then let it be truly obvious for everybody that I'll be a community. And then when this will happen, we will see. Yeah? So I gave myself at the beginning five years to, uh, uh, to get it done. We're halfway through that. So ask me again in two and a half years. Definitely. And with this passion, I'm sure it will go a long way. Thank you very much, John Sebastian. You've been listening to the full interview edition of The Road to Open Science, a podcast from the Utrecht Young Academy. Our guest was John Sebastian Co, professor of physics and founder of the scientific publishing portal SciPost.org. The discussion about this podcast and the show notes are hosted on the portal of the Open Science Community Utrecht at www.openscience-utrecht.com. We'd love to know what you think of the Road to Open Science podcast and the issues we have discussed with our guests. You can engage with us on Twitter using our handle at sign R2OSpodcast or if you want, just contact me directly at s.faez at sign uu.nl. Thanks go to Livy Hermans and Marisa Moll for helping bring the podcast together and Andy Clark who helps us with the production. And from me, San Lifaez, thanks for listening. 